0: Hello, welcome to the latest MoneyMakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me today, as so often, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, we said it's been a pretty interesting start to the year. There's been a lot of lot of moving parts, with a lot of style rotation bit of a sell-off in anticipation of interest rate rises and so on. So we, I guess we ought to start off by talking about what's been happening in the market and what's been happening in broad terms to
1: the investment trust sector, as we always do. Well, it's been, I think, another nervous week would be the best way to describe it, particularly for the investment company sector. So in the first four trading days of the week, investment companies find themselves once again in negative territory, down about half a percent or so. That compares with a rise of 0.4% for the UK market in the form of the the FTSE All Share Index. The sector average discount for investment companies, it's kind of flapped around a little bit, probably in a range of about 3% to 3.5% at the moment. And again, just a look at it since the beginning of the year, what investment companies find themselves down about 5%, 5 5.1% to be more precise, again, compared with a rise of 1.6% for the FTSE All Share, so the wider UK market. So, definitely a bit of nervousness around. Obviously, as you've just mentioned, inflation remains, I think, the market's key focus, though geopolitical risk seems to be ratcheting up sadly. And I think people have at least one eye on Russia's intentions towards Ukraine. But as one commentator suggested this week, uh, the market is now faced with the prospect of lower earnings and higher borrowing costs. And there certainly seems to be some kind of mixed data out there. China. Economic growth in the final quarter of last year slowed to a mere 4%. Also, a lot of talk about oil prices going up beyond $100 a barrel, which would be the highest level since 2014. But it's very much about how the um, Federal Reserve and the prospects of rising uh, interest rates, what will be the impact of that on markets?
0: Yeah, so a lot to digest there. I think it's fair to say that... uh as we said in uh, 2020, when uh, investment trusts did very well and uh, they outperformed the FTSE all-share index, I suppose there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, we've been saying for a long time that UK looks cheap, and in relative terms, the UK market, particularly the FTSE 100, is doing particularly well. Uh, the large, boring companies that people never wanted to own before has been doing pretty well in relative terms. But also, of course, the fact that the investment trust sector, which is what we're talking about here, as represented by the listed uh, investment trusts in the 350, in the all-share index, they tend to have more of a global bias. They tend to have more of a, a growthy bias. And so there's been a style effect as well. A question maybe for you, the index of investment trust performance is presumably weighted by market capitalization. Would that be right? So yeah. in other words, if Scottish mortgage, just to take the extreme example, has a very bad period, that's going to have a proportionate effect on the performance of the investment trust index.
1: Uh, would that be right? That's absolutely correct. So if you look at the year to date, share price performance of Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, the largest constituent of that investment company's universe, that's down about 14% or so. And there are a number of other large investment companies that have struggled so far this year. So um, Smithson Investment Trust, we talked about that a number of times, that's also down 14%. A number of the funds in the Bailey Gifford stable have struggled this year given their growth focus. So Bailey Gifford US growth down 21%. Uh, we've seen some of the funds have done very well over the last 10 years, just struggle a little bit in terms of headwind this year. So Allianz Technology down 17 percent, Biotech Growth down 19 percent. These are all quite sizable investment companies. And so we'll have a, a reasonable weighting in that uh, investment companies universe.
0: So what your experience as an investor is going to be very much determined by how well those particular large uh, investment trusts that have all taken a bit of a, well, a serious beating so far this year, how large they figure in your in your portfolio. And I guess that's why the index figure may be giving a slightly misleading position unless you have the market cap weights in your portfolio. And of course, there are some investment trusts which aren't in the All Share Index as well. You might remind us how many of the investment trust universe is actually in the All Share Index
1: roughly. Roughly, I'd say off the top of my head, there's probably about 170, 180 or so investment companies in the all show at the moment, just approximately. And everyone kind of cuts the investment company universe in different ways. But certainly in Winterfell, uh, we would have about 320 or so investment companies in our universe. So there's quite a large number not in the index, and they would tend to be the smaller ones.
0: OK, so that puts a bit of context around what's been happening, but it's is not denying that it's been a very uh, tough period for the investment trust sector with as you've just said, all the kind of big and popular names, so many of them taking a bit of a beating. And it's only been things like, well, let's just quickly talk in general terms then about uh, some of the trusts that have done rather better. I mean, they have some of the, the value trusts. We mentioned Temple Bar last week, for example, deep value trusts have been doing relatively uh, much better because
1: they are owning these kind of FTSE 100 stocks that uh, nobody else really wanted to own for a while. No, that's absolutely right. So Temple Bar's up 12% in share price terms this year. Lowland Investment Company up 6%. That's also got a more value-orientated approach to the UK market. Um, We've also seen some of the specialist funds focused on the resources sector do very well. So BlackRock, World Mining, uh, one of the strongest performers, up about 14%. CQS, Natural Resources Growth and Income, up 18%. And another BlackRock fund in that similar space, Energy and Resources Income, up 14%. So they've all done very well. But there are also a number of interesting mandates that 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 seem to be kind of pushing on, including those in the property sector. So we talked about property quite a bit uh, last year and how that rebounded in 2021 Um, We've got names this year such as UK commercial property up 10% so far this year, BMO commercial property up 8%. So it's not all bad news by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Indeed, it's not. And I suppose there's one other point I'd like to make actually about this, which is that this will be a period where the large cap stocks in the UK market are doing well. Uh, this is going to be typically a period when active managers are going to underperform on average because they're competing against uh, index funds a lot of and therefore if you're a fund management firm you tend not to have these actively managed funds which are concentrating on uh, the FTSE 100 index as opposed to the all share they tend to operate in the smaller mid-cap areas and therefore when the market falls and FTSE does relatively well the FTSE 100 does very well I should say active managers on general are going to do relatively less well would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean, it obviously depends exactly on, on the mandate. But as a rule of thumb, I mean, if you look at where the UK market is at the moment, as we said, it's in positive territory so far this year. But it's been quite focused on, a, on, a, on a quite a select number of sectors and, and obviously resources and, and energy companies would be amongst them. So for many active uh, UK focused investors, they will take a far wider approach. So slightly more difficult conditions.
0: Okay, well, with that in mind, let's move on and talk about some of the corporate activity. I'm going to mention later on, you've had your uh, conference this week, your annual conference, Simon, and uh, we might talk about a couple of the speakers there. I listened to some of it, and that was very interesting. But before we do that, let's just quickly cover off some corporate activity. And we're going to kick off with JP Morgan Japan, small cap growth and income, ticker JSGI.
1: What's happening there? So, the news this week was that the lead portfolio manager, so that's Eiji Satai, I think is how you pronounce that name, will be leaving JP Morgan to pursue academic interests, I think off to law school to be more precise. And he will be replaced by Mayako uh, Urabi, who joined the Japanese equities team in 2013 and has been uh, involved in managing actually the Multicap Japan growth unconstrained strategy since twenty fifteen. So an experienced investor. There's a few other changes as well to the team. So Zooming Tao will join Mayaka as a co-portfolio manager and now Ozawa will continue as co-portfolio manager. So these management changes all came into effect on Wednesday, so the 19th of January. But the important thing for, for shareholders in the fund, there's no change to the investment objective or policies. So this is a Tokyo-based uh, experience team. There's very much a kind of team-based approach, uh, a lot of experience of the small cap market. And so it really should not have any impact. I'd just kind of something
0: about the performance and rating of this particular trust. Uh, how does it sit among, it's obviously especially small-cap trust, but how does it sit in, uh, and, and what's its peer group look like?
1: Yeah, so I think we talked a few times recently about how Japanese smaller companies have really struggled uh, of late, particularly those with a kind of more growth-orientated approach. And the JP Morgan Fund is probably amongst them. So I'll give you the long-term numbers in a minute. But just over the short term, so the last three months, it's down 20% as is, Bailey Kavachin Nippon, Atlantis Japan Growth down 16%. So this is an area the market has been hit quite hard. Over the longer term, though, five years NAV total return of the J.P. Morgan Japan Small Cap Growth and Income Fund is up 37%, and that compares with some of those other funds. So Atlantis Japan Growth up 55%, and the Bailey Nippon Fund up 63%.
0: So it has performance record has not been as good as some. OK, let's move on and talk about Scottish Investment Trust, ticker SCIN, a venerable member of the investment trust sector, to whom we are about to say goodbye, as we know, because it's going to be merged with uh, JP Morgan's Global Growth and Income Trust. And there's been some update on that.
1: Yeah, that's right. So as we've discussed before, there's various stages in this process of the merger. So what's happened this week and this follows shareholder approval, is that JP Morgan has been appointed as the investment manager of Scottish Investment Trust. So this is a kind of interim measure effectively. Um, It allows the portfolio to be repositioned. So it will be more or less a carbon copy of the JP Morgan global growth and income portfolio. So it will be a natural alignment. And then when they are ready to progress with the merger, when they have the necessary permissions and so on and so forth. And I think at the moment, we're expecting it by the end of the first quarter of this year, then that merger should in theory be seamless. So that was the news this week. So from this week, JP Morgan in charge, and it will pursue the same investment strategy as the JP Morgan Global Growth and Income Fund.
0: Okay, well, that's obviously uh, all changed there, as we said, and goodbye to the Scottish Investment Trust. I thought I would ask you, since this announcement was made, uh, we did talk at the time about uh, the fact that there might be some style rotation going on, and Scottish, the way it's been managed the last few years, have been very disappointing results. uh, But it has been done with, again, with a kind of deep value uh, style. But how has it done since the announcement was made, and given that there's been
1: all this style rotation going on in the market? That's an interesting point. So it's benefited from being re-rated. So at the point of the announcement of the proposal to to merge the two investment trusts. Scottish Investment Trust was traded out on a wideish discount. That's subsequently narrowed in. I've got it on on just a very small discount at the moment. So that's benefited its share price, which is up 17% uh, since the 20th of October last year, at the point that the merger was announced. In NAV terms, the portfolio is up 7%. And that compares with the the FTSE World Index, so effectively what global equities have done, which are probably about flat in that period. So, yes, there has been a, a little bit of a falling wind for value investors over the last few months. So
0: at least it's going out on a high note, shall we say. Uh, so, And let's hope that it doesn't become one of those uh, symbols of a complete change in market direction. And uh, the fact that it's the board decided to dispense with the management services of the previous team, which were deep value. I uh, hope they haven't done that at just the wrong moment when deep value becomes the thing, the place to be. Uh, has happened before, as we know. We shall see. Anyway, let's move on and talk about uh, a trust that is very much a successful newcomer to the investment trust world over the last few years, and that is Supermarket Income REIT, ticker SUPR. The board's been saying something there, and uh, what have they had to say?
1: Yeah, so this was uh, an interesting development. The board of Supermarket Income REIT basically came out this week and said that they believe that the migration of the listing, they're currently on the specialist fund segment, and they believe that moving that to the premium segment of the official list and and therefore to the London Stock Exchange's main market is in the best interests of the fund and indeed its shareholders. So what would happen as a result of that? Well, a fund would be eligible for inclusion in the FTSE All Share and, in fact, other index series as well. So just to remind you, this investment company began trading back in July 2017, And since that time, its market cap has grown from about 100 million to I think we're about 1.2 billion now. So significant growth. So basically, a move to the main market would make a lot of sense. And they've applied for this and an update will be provided in due course.
0: Well, it has been an extraordinary success without even coming to the main market. I think it's fair to say to get to that size of trust in, uh, in just five years or less than five years. It's sold basically on the strength of, its, it offers yield and capital growth. But I mean, I'm just looking at the share price. It's about, what is it about 123 or something like that. Have I got that right? So in that time, it's appreciated by 23% over, over just coming up for five years. But it also does pay a handsome dividend, of course. I think somewhere around 5%, you'll correct me on that. Um, and it's trading at a massive premium. So they have done extraordinarily well. It shows you don't actually need to deliver kind of outstanding performance in order to grow assets
1: in these kind of specialist areas. Yeah, I think it's about delivering on on what you say you're capable of delivering on, to be perfectly honest. So um, at the outset, they would have given a targeted return. And obviously, the yield, the dividend would be a key part of that. So again, just to put the the numbers around that yield, it's 4.8% on a historical basis, the dividend yield. And and clearly, that's a key part of the attraction. But just in general, we have seen um, strong demand for some of the more specialist property plays over the last few years. So the move has in general been away some of the kind of more generalist commercial property plays to the kind of pure plays and and obviously supermarkets is, is part of that.
0: Indeed. And supermarkets have obviously done themselves have done very well over the last couple of years in the pandemic anyway. They've certainly been performing quite well. And we're seeing bids in that sector as well. Though they're there. obviously the supermarket income read is not directly exposed to that, but indirectly it does show there's a lot of demand and opportunities for them to invest. I would have thought that in sort of historical experience, if you're going to move from the specialist fund segment to the premium market, investment trusts do that normally when they're somewhat smaller than that. They don't have to wait to be a billion market cap, do they?
1: No, I mean, it's not a size-driven thing. there would be other considerations, particularly in terms of the, the nature of the portfolio. It might be to do with the nature of the shareholder base as well. Um, but it's not a case that you get over a certain size and then you kind of move to the main market. That's not really how, how it works. But it is something to keep an eye on because... By becoming eligible for the FTSE All share and those mainstream indexes, it does mean that passive investors, so the index trackers, are compelled to buy you. And we have seen a number of investment companies either make that move across or, for that matter, launch and then shortly thereafter become eligible for the indices. Um, And you do see quite a pickup in in demand uh, for the shares as a result of that.
0: Then this 4.8% yield, or roughly so, is um, despite the fact that the shares traded at a big premium?
1: That's absolutely right. So I've got them on about a fourteen percent premium at the moment. And again, some of those specialist property funds that I mentioned do trade well, do trade on premiums. We talked quite a bit about the um, logistic uh, warehouse type plays, uh, and they tend to trade well. But versus that, the kind of more generalist commercial property funds that I that I talked about, you can certainly find quite a few of those on double digit discounts.
0: Yes, indeed. I think so. That is one of the richest uh, premiums out there. I think at the moment. Let's move on and talk about something slightly different, which is. Our old friends at Third Point Investors, ticker TPOU. This is the Hedge Fund Investment Trust, managed by Dan Loeb. And, uh, well, I'm not surprised here. There's been a bit more uh, communication between the uh, shareholders who are trying to change things and um, the board and the management team. So what's what's the latest in this one?
1: Well, it's another chapter, actually. Basically, the announcement this week is that AVI, so Asset Value Investors, who are the manager of the AVI Global Opportunities Investment Trust, formerly known as British Empire Securities, AVI and three other shareholders, and together they represent more than 18% of the ordinary shares in Third Point Investors, they have requisitioned the board, again, to convene an EGM for shareholders to vote on the appointment of a gentleman called Richard Berliat as a new independent director of Third Point Investors. So what's happening here? Well, this is obviously a long-running saga, but AVI have basically suggested that in their words, what began as a dispute over a discount control mechanism has effectively, through the actions of the board, and this is their quote, exploded into a fully fledged corporate governance crisis. So an interesting development is accompanied by another letter. We've had quite a few letters in this saga. This is a letter from the pen of Tom Trina of AVI, and he writes a good letter, does Tom, as we've discussed before. And it's quite punchy stuff, and it sets out the case quite clearly and their views on this fund and the board and the actions that have been taken without wishing to go through all the uh, the ins and outs. Um, uh, for people who are interested in this one, it's certainly worth a read. I think what is the key point here is this proposal to appoint Richard out Now, he is a well-known investment trust director. He's on several investment companies at the moment, including MNG Credit Income, CVC Credit Partners, European Opportunities. And he's involved, he's an offshore director, so he's based in the Channel Islands, and he runs a governance agency as well. So he's known for being an independent director. And AVI, or in Tom's letter, makes the point that there is no connection of Richard out. He's not, as some people might suggest, a stooge of theirs by any stretch of the imagination. But they believe that by getting Richard on the board, it would move this particular investment company towards better corporate governance. But uh, within the letter, I mean, there's some very colourful stuff, but they do make the point to the other three independent uh, directors on this board that, um, to quote, your investors are watching, uh, and they list out all the investment companies that these three other uh, independent directors are involved with. So I think um, the heat is still on with this one.
0: Well, they've already lost the chairman, have they not, uh, who said that he felt that he was being blackmailed, I think was the term that (laughs) Third Point used, or something like that anyway. You know, you could interpret this as a similar kind of threat. You know, we're watching you. I guess the implication is if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to say you're not a suitable director somewhere else. Would that be kind of overregging that particular comment, do you think?
1: Well, they're trying to put the independent directors in the spotlight. There's no two ways about that, as evidenced by the fact that they are collectively involved in quite a few investment companies. They are well-known people across the industry and they have a number of different responsibilities, as did Steve Bates, who I think I think the word was threatened by um, one of the activist shareholders in, in a meeting that they had. But look, I mean, I think we're going to be talking about this one again. I think that's probably quite obvious. It'd be interesting to see how Third Point investors respond to this. Obviously, they have requisitioned this meeting. The key is what happens in terms of the votes that uh, not just Dan Loeb, who's the investment manager and also owns a stake in the company, but in terms of the vote co company that's responsible for forty percent of the unlisted B shares. And again, without wishing to go into all the history of that, that structure has been used to kind of block other resolutions, basically by the activist investors. So it'd be interesting to see how that block is voted this time. But yes, this is an ongoing saga. But I think for many people who who you know have, haven't got a dog in the fight in this instance. Putting someone like Richard Boliath on the board, I think many people will see as a as a positive step forward, given the reputation that he's had, uh, that he's built up through his number of other investment company directorships.
0: And it's probably worth making the point that when you are an independent and non-executive director, it's not like you're, I mean, I well, think as the directors of the old Woodford Public Private Trust found out. I mean, it's uh, you can get involved in an awful lot of work and you don't get paid very much for your efforts. You could say, well, you get paid a lot if nothing's happening. Uh, some people would hold that view. But, you know, you might be getting twenty twenty five or well, some of them do get more than that, 25,000 a year. But if you put yourself into a, into a hot seat like this, you're, uh, you're probably going to earn your chips, I think, in this kind of case. But um, that's just an observation. OK, so we move on and we can talk a little bit about fundraising. We said the fundraising has continued into the new year, despite these uh, rather choppy market conditions. Let's kick off with another of these specialist uh, property trusts, LXI REIT, ticker LXI, unsurprisingly. And they are planning to come to the market for some more money, I think.
1: That's absolutely right. They've announced this week they're looking to issue new shares. They want to raise a target of up to about £125 million. will be via a placing open offer for subscription and intermediaries offer under their share issuance programme. Um, so basically, these shares, there'll be about £88 million or so, will be issued at a price of 142p. Now, that represents a 3% premium to the NAV at the end of December, so the end of 2021, adjusted for the latest dividend and a 7% discount to the closing share price just ahead of the announcement. But there has been an acquisition pipeline identified and that's valued at 272 million and that consists of both built assets and forward funded structures as well. But again, to the kind of specialist point of this particular property play Um, That portfolio has not only has a blended net initial yield of about 5.2%, but 97% are index-linked or fixed uplift. So this is the kind of thing that differentiates LXI REIT. Um, The guidance is that the net issue proceeds will be expected to be uh, substantially invested or committed within a a three-month period. And that placing closes on the 9th of February, with the results due to be published the following day. Yes, and so
0: this trust is one which, obviously, in the current climate of you know high and rising inflation, we're not quite sure whether how it's going to settle down in inflation. They obviously they're having all these index linked or fixed uplifts is very attractive in terms of uh, as a potential investor. On the other hand, of course, you have to say that actually, which you look in the, in the small print they don't necessarily have full index inflation coverage. Quite often they have what's called caps and collars. And and therefore, if inflation goes above a certain level, and I, ones I look at typically around 4% or something, you don't actually get the full indexation necessary. But uh, so you have to look a little bit at the small print, but uh, notwithstanding, they've been very successful. They also, I'm sure, trade at a premium. Well, I know they do because I'm actually an investor in this one, so I do know that. And um, You've already said that this would be a discount to the share price, but they are trading at a premium, I'm sure. Uh, has that come in at all as a
1: result of this fundraising announcement? Yeah, that's right. So I've got them on about a 5% premium or so at the moment. On average, over the previous 12 months, they've been on about an 11% premium. So as often happens when you announce plans for fundraising, you just see that premium come down a little bit, and that's exactly what's happened in this case. But they have traded strongly over the last year.
0: I should say at this point, for those of you who uh, listen to the Moneymakers Circle or are members of the Moneymakers Circle, we are actually doing a profile of LXI REIT next week, uh, just ahead of the placing. I'm not doing that. My colleague Stuart Watts is doing that. But uh, interesting to see what he has to come up with about this one. We'll do a full deep dive into what it does and how it operates. So if you're interested in that, um, obviously last week I did a Q&A with a man who's currently in the in the eye of the storm, which was uh, Simon Barnard, the manager of uh, Smithson. And you may also have heard this week, uh, many of you, from Terry Smith. Who had his uh, annual meeting? Uh, interesting comments from him. And this week we've got a Q and A with uh, Peter Hewitt, who is the uh, manager of the BMO Global Portfolio Trust. They have a income share class and a growth share class, and uh, he has some interesting things to say about where we are at the moment in the market and what he's been doing about it, as someone who invests only in other investment trusts. So that's the circle this week. But uh, let's move on and talk about more fundraising, and this time. Uh, another trust which is in a sweet spot, I think it's fair to say at the moment, uh, and that is Polar Capital
1: Global Financials Trust, ticker PCFT. And what have they had to say this week? So basically, they outlined plans for further fundraising. So they have been very popular, very successful in recent times in terms of issuing new shares. So just to put some numbers on that, from the end of November 2020 uh, to the 20th of January this year, they raised or they'd issued new shares worth around about £273 million. So it's been proven very popular. It's clearly traded on a premium rating and they've been able to issue new shares. Their remaining shareholder authority is getting quite low now, so they can only issue up about £3.7 million. So they're going to hold a general meeting on the 1st of February to kind of renew those powers. But in addition to that, apparently certain investors would, and I quote, welcome an additional opportunity to invest in the fund, So as a result, the board are considering further issuance under its existing issuance authority. So uh, kind of watch this space on this particular investment company.
0: And I guess we have to point out again that this is an interesting example of, uh, if you like, investor fashion or investor sentiment, because it was less than two years ago that uh, Polar Capital Global Financials Trust nearly went out of business. Uh, They had a tender offer where everybody wanted to give the shares back if they could. And uh, they nearly got more than 50% uh, tendering, which would have, I think... uh, uh, meant the end of them as an independent uh, trust almost certainly. So uh, it just shows how sentiment can swing. They must have raised more money than they gave back, I imagine, uh, two years ago. So uh, it's just very popular, uh, not least because banks in a rising interest rate world tend to do better. They make uh, better mar- profit margins. And so it's very much uh, in a sweet spot. Some of these trusts did actually provide a specialist need, I think it's fair to say, Simon, um, you know their time can come round again, even though they can have periods of quite poor performance.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And and you know we talked at the start of this podcast about how those investment companies in the resources sector enjoyed their moment in, in the sun. To be honest, over the last year or two, that's been true. Whereas those in the healthcare, biotech, and and probably uh, technology sector are probably struggling a little bit of late. So yes, things do uh, move in cycles. It's fair to say.
0: The question, of course, is whether this is a durable cycle or just a short-term cycle. And that's one of the great consequences of the whole debate about inflation, which will play out over the course of the next few months. And we'll see who is right and who is wrong about that. Okay, time to move on to some results. and Let's talk about uh, Bankers Investment Trust, ticker BNKR, another well-established investment trust. Uh, Tell us uh, about what they've been up to and uh,
1: what they're saying. So these were annual results for the year to the end of October. So for the first October 2021, in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 26.5%. That compared with a rise of 32.3% for their benchmark, which is the FTSE World index Uh, share price terms uh, struggled a little bit. They were up in positive territory, but up 18.6 percent. And that was a reflection of the fact they moved effectively from a premium to about a six percent discount in that period. But in better news, the revenue per share increased that was up by 29 percent on the year. And they were able, therefore, to increase their dividend by 1%. So basically, the, the dividend was uncovered in the previous financial year. It's still uncovered for this period, but a lot less. So the, the earnings per share, or the revenue per share, was in at 2.17p, um, and their aggregate dividend was 2.176p. So used a little bit of revenue reserves. But Alex Crook, the long-standing manager of this one, gave a very good approach. And, and it's worth noting that the long-term track record of bankers is very strong over 10 years, It's up in NAV total return terms, up 248% compared with 188% for their uh, composite index over that period. And they've grown their dividend by 71% as well. So this year's increase represented the 55th successive year of annual dividend growth. But um, some very good detail in the investment manager's report about what worked and what didn't work in this particular period. And it's it's a slightly old-fashioned investment trust, this one. So what we used to call global generalists, when effectively... Um, the portfolios in kind of geographical regions. So basically, all the regional portfolios were positive in the year, with the exception of China. That was the kind of key uh, detractor, although apparently the investment case in China is still seen very much as uh, intact. But some good commentary over uh, areas that worked for the portfolio in this stage. So the UK was interesting, actually, because they effectively underperformed in the UK. It was in positive territory. But that was a result of being underweight the oil companies. Um, and they made the decision to reduce the number of holdings in the UK portfolio down to between 25 and 30, and reduce the uh, small cap holdings as well. So, an interesting period for bankers, probably a little bit defensively positioned with the reasons for its underperformance.
0: Yes, I mean we talked actually uh, not so long ago about the issue of some of the other global generalist trusts, which are, you know, struggling to perhaps justify their existence when competing against, uh, you know, very low-cost index funds and so on. Uh, But bankers, I think, is one which uh, it's managed by uh, Janice Henderson. It's one which I think is still ahead of the market over a period of time, as you said, and uh, so therefore could at least claim that they are adding something through offering you a a global mandate with a little bit of superior performance. Would that be right?
1: Yes. And I think the fact that they're a dividend hero, so the AIC dividend hero, they've got the 55 years, I think that helps their, their case as well. I mean, just to put some numbers around it, over the last five years on an NAV total return basis, they're up 71%. That compares with 68% for uh, Alliance Trust, 72%, so just a little bit behind, F&C Investment Trust. And Witten, uh, that's up 50% over that period as well. So I would, I would suggest they're probably the most comparative investment trust in the in the peer group.
0: So they're certainly ahead, at least in that uh, league table, yeah. Or mini league table, I should say. Let's move on and talk about something very different, which is the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker R-I-C-A, which is in the flexible investment sector and has a very different kind of approach to a lot of other investment trusts, well, actually, almost every other investment trust, I think it's fair to say.
1: What are their uh, latest investment report had to say? So this was the investment report for uh, December, so the last month of last year. They were in, up in that month, they were up about 0.2%, but actually for the whole of 2021, their NAV was up 11.4% and the three-year annualised return was 11.1%. So this has been a good solid period for rougher investment Company. It's very much about um, protecting capital and, and growing it in real terms. I mean, again, how the portfolio performed in, in December gives you some insight into that. So equities were, were positive, whereas the derivative protection in that particular month proved a little bit of, of a negative factor, as did inflation-linked bonds. Um, that detracted by about 1.6% just in that month. But some good commentary from Hamish Bailey and Duncan McInnes in terms of what they're doing. So they basically use the the sell-off, the Omicron sell-off in December to reinforce some of their core positions in energy, financials and industrials. And certainly they do have a high conviction in both financial and energy equities at the moment. But always a good kind of investor letter. They they ended on a bit of a warning. Things are likely to get more rather than less difficult from here and suggested that investors focus on risk and a multi-asset approach.
0: Indeed. And uh, it is a good read, as you say, and they uh, they certainly set out their case uh, very clearly, much more clearly than perhaps uh, uh, many other trusts do. Let's talk about the independent investment trust, uh, ticker IIT. This is always an interesting one. This is managed by a gentleman called Max Ward, who was the manager of Scottish Mortgage before... Uh, well, till back in the day when um, James Anderson uh, took it over and it went into this kind of new phase of its existence. But he's still a, a very experienced and uh, well-known manager
1: in Edinburgh. And uh, well, how is how are they performing? So these were the annual results for the year to the end of November last year. The NAV total return was positive. It was up 14.4%. But that compares to a rise of 17.4% for the FTSE All Share. In share price terms, not quite as good as its NAV performance. It was up 9.3% and the discount basically widened from about 8% to 12% in the period. In fact, both the Germans and the investment managers, or the managing director, I should say, uh, report made the point that actually it was the last 10 weeks of the financial year that saw the fund underperform by over 10%. And the board attributed that to a change in market sentiment so lots of detail on the portfolio from in in max ward's managing director's report i mean the portfolio is in kind of different silos so he talks about the technology stocks so he's got a, a holding in uh, herald in- investment trust which performed well in the period other companies such as seeing machines the exposure to business services has, has been increased travel and leisure acted as a, as a bit of a headwind companies like jet Two and on the beach uh, and also some of the computer game developers as well were disappointed, including Frontier Developments. Also, um house builders proved positive in this period. But I think the point with Max, as you say, he's a, a hugely experienced uh, investor, uh, independent investment trust. I think it's been up and running since uh, 2000, since the point he retired from Bailey Gifford. But it, it's all about stock picking. It's all about the ideas that he's seeing uh, at any one moment in time. But in this particular period, as I said, he, he did lag the UK market. The other thing to note is that he's sitting on cash at the year end or at the end of November, the financial year end. Uh, that was about 12.5%, but that was down from about 19% a year earlier. So he had built it up during that that previous year. And that actually, funnily enough, acted as a bit of a headwind at that period. But he's been happy to deploy some of that cash in this period.
0: I mean, actually, this investor trust has an interesting history. It actually dates back, uh, you know, before Max Ward. It dates back all the way to the nineteen twenties, as I recall, when it was one of its directors was Maynard Keynes in its very early existence. So it's got an interesting history. Um, I notice, actually, in the chairman's statement, he said, uh, "You know, we've had four years of disappointing performance." These words, I think, but he says, uh, despite the disappointing performance of the portfolio, we remain pleased with the quality of its constituents, and he goes on to explain that uh, most of them are trading well. And those that are not are in a strong financial condition. Our chief concerns are not with our businesses, but with the level of stock markets generally and with the risk that central banks may be misjudging the possibility of more durable inflation than they are currently anticipating. So Max Ward, like uh, I suppose many of us with uh, long memories, you know, the spectre of inflation is uh, perhaps triggering some uh, historic uh, nerve ends that uh, perhaps uh, more recent investors don't have because we know what going into an inflation period is like. However, we'll find out whether that positioning is correct or not, as again, as this year plays out. Uh, Let's move on and talk about some specialist results now. And let's go and talk about Tufton Oceanic Assets, ticker SHIP. One of two or three uh,
1: new shipping companies that come back to the investment trust sector. And what have they had to say? So this was an update for the final quarter of last year. Uh, And in that time, their NAV total return was up 2.1%. Actually, through the whole of 2021, though, the NAV total return came in at 49.1%, so a very strong period for shipping in general. Um, They've also declared a dividend of 2 cents, uh, which will be paid on the 11th of February. But quite a bit of detail in terms of the, the valuations of some of the ships in the portfolio. It's worth noting that upon completion of recent transactions, the fund will have about 23 vessels And that's with an average expected charter cover of about 1.9 years. And also, they've looked to reduce um, what's described as the portfolio price to depreciated replacement cost ratio, uh, which sounds a bit technical, from 125% to 105%. But effectively, that signifies the de-risking as far as they're concerned of the portfolio with higher upside potential. Uh, And they're looking to move that on further. But uh, basically, if you read the report, uh, Tuftons, the investment managers, believes that the, the shipping market is in a multi-year up cycle uh, and indeed offers inflation protection. So that's their thesis. Right. And certainly at the
0: moment, they're in the eye of the storm of uh, supply shortages and so on. And there's a lot of demand for shipping, as we know. Uh, so that's been a good period for them. But how are these shares trading? I mean, there was uh, they've had some issuance, I think, these uh, Taylor Maritime and uh, Tufton Oceanic have done some issuance in the last year. How are they trading now? They did go to premiums for a while, did they not?
1: Yeah, that's right. So Tufton Oceanic Assets, I've got that on about a 3% discount or so at the moment. Uh, Taylor Maritime, I've got them on about a 7% discount. And both of those represent a little bit of a derating. So Taylor Maritime, I've had that on average over the previous 12 months trading on a a 2% premium. Um, So there's 7% discount now. And equally, Tufton Oceanic Assets, probably about 1% premium on average over the previous 12 months, now at a 3% discount.
0: So they've certainly uh, taken a little bit of erosion there in the rating. You're quite right. So let's move on. Finally, now we're going to get to the property sector. We've talked about that obviously at the top of the show. And uh, let's mention a couple of examples of property investment trusts, which are doing specialist things mainly. Let's kick off with AEW UK REIT, ticker AEWU. What have they had to say about their
1: performance? So this was an update for the final quarter of last year, and we're going to see this quite a lot over the next few weeks, these Q4 or these quarterly updates from the property companies. So this is one of the first that we've seen, and it's basically a positive story. So the NAV total return was up 5.6% in that period. Um, It's probably one of the smaller property funds, um, but the assets, they got 35 assets, they were valued at $226 at the end of December, and a like-for-like valuation was up 3.5%. So within their portfolio, retail warehousing performed well, as did industrial. So they were up 7% and 5%, respectively. Um, they're also making progress on the earnings per share front as well. So that came in at 1.8, uh, and that compared with 1.3p back in the previous quarter, so Q3 of last year. So they've declared a dividend in respect of that quarter of 2p. So it's not quite covered, but it's worth noting that AEW UK REIT was one of the, I think it was the only actual property investment company that didn't cut or suspend its dividend back when the when the pandemic hit in, in 2020. So they've kept that going, though it's clearly uh, a little bit uncovered. But they're also taking quite a bit of portfolio activity. And I think the idea is to get that dividend fully covered uh, sooner rather than later. But also um, some positive news on the rent collection front, um, certainly in the quarter, which began on the 25th of December last year, 98% of the rent had been collected was expected to be received by the quarter end.
0: Yes, and this trust remains, uh, well, it has performed very well, I think, uh, in its sector. I may be wrong in saying it's in the sort of general commercial property sector, it's probably the best performer over five years or second best, perhaps, I would say, is it something like that? And yet it still offers a very handsome yield. So its specialist
1: approach is paying dividends, not just literally, but uh, uh, overall. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So um, I've got it on a 7% premium uh, and a yield of over 7% as well, actually. But you're right. In terms of the return it's generated in share price total return terms over five years, I've got them up eighty eight percent, and um, that would put them some way above all the other kind of more general UK commercial property plays.
0: Yeah, so they've done a very good job for shareholders. And, uh, well done to them. Let's move on then and talk about another specialist property trust. This PRS REIT ticker PRSR, which actually I did an interesting interview with the uh, the guys behind that last year. So uh, tell us what they do and uh, how are they performing?
1: So this, again, was an update for the quarter to the end of December, which is actually the second quarter of their financial year. But there's quite a lot of portfolio activity going on here. So just to remind people, this is a a residential property play. They're involved in the development as well. So it's a kind of build-to-rent model. So during that quarter, they added 198 new rental homes to the portfolio. That was probably a little bit lower than what they'd hoped. And clearly, you know, the impact of the coronavirus hitting staff absences Just slowed that progress down, but the delivery program is about eighty percent complete. So, as at the end of twenty twenty one, they had just short of four thousand five hundred homes in the portfolio, and that's up forty two percent year on year. And their expected rental value um, that was forty eight percent higher, about forty three and a half million pounds. So they're building this portfolio out. They've also got further homes that they've contracted to bring online. So that's just short of nine hundred and fifty million homes in the relatively near term. So the, the long and the short of it is that they've fully committed the proceeds of the, of the money they raised back in September last year. And they're looking to acquire at least two further sites during the first half of this year. And they'll do that using debt funding. And they now anticipate delivering the 5000 for completed home towards the end of this year, so 2022.
0: Yeah, so this is another trust which actually started life about five years ago. And their progress towards this 5000 home target did get delayed by the uh, the pandemic. But it's an interesting story, and uh, it's uh, one that I found very interesting talking to the characters behind it. at Sigma Capital. It's quite an interesting story. And, you know, build to rent, many people see that as uh, an area where the UK needs to do a lot better than it has done in the past. We don't have a big rented sector like many other continental countries do, for example, private rental sector, that is. So it's uh, they seem to be, again, another specialist trust that seems to be in the right place at the right time. But they've also had a re-rating, as I recall, because they did go uh, to quite a big discount, I think, and now they're back at a premium because I've been following them. That's the only reason
1: I really have those numbers in front of me. But tell me, tell me what the story is there. No, your recollection is spot on, actually. So if you look over the previous 12 months, they've been out on a discount as wide of about 11%. They've probably averaged about a 3% premium or so. But at the moment, I've got them on a 10% premium. So you're spot on.
0: They really have come back into favor and a good example of how that can happen. Uh, of course, then raises the issue whether if you are an investor, whether you should be slightly wary of that. Any case, so that brings us to the end of the news announcements this week. I guess we should just got a couple of minutes to talk about uh, where we are and what's happening. As we said, there's a lot of rotation in in the market, significant rotation. So, as we said a couple of weeks ago, in 2020, you had to pay a big premium to buy a technology trust or Scottish mortgage or a Bailey Gifford trust. Now they're not quite giving them away, but they are available uh, on discounts, uh, many of them, and uh, they've had a period of poor performance. So the question, I guess, many investors will be facing is, what should I do about it? If this is a massive turning point, should I be, you know, reducing my holdings, or should I actually be thinking of buying some more? Because if they were, if they were good buy when you started, they should be uh, an even better buy now. What do you think? Uh, you know, kind of the more sophisticated investors
1: are thinking about these kind of uh, uh, sharp market movements in the short term. I think the kind of the headline is that people have very different views on it. So, um, you mentioned we held our annual investment companies conference this week. Uh, we had a number of investment managers speak at that, and uh, again, a range of different views, as you would expect given their uh, different investment approaches. So, if you talk to someone like John Bennett, who of Janice Henderson, who's also responsible for the Henderson European Focus Investment Trust, you know this is something. This kind of sell-off in growth companies is something that he's been expecting for some time, and. He has actively positioned his portfolio to. I think he talks about the left behind companies, those companies that um, haven't really commanded the market's interest up until now. So, uh, strangely enough, his portfolio or his fund is actually holding up quite well in this market sell-off, where others more growth-oriented uh, are taking quite a hit. But, you know, to your point earlier, how long does this last for? Is this something that we're just going to be with us for a few weeks or a few months, and then we'll revert back to that kind of growth bias? But that's certainly something that, that people are considering. Is it an opportunity? I mean, we talked to the managers of the J.P. Morgan Global Growth and Income Fund, so Helgi Skipelly and, and Tim Woodhouse, and again, you know, you talk to them about this growth sell-off and and how they've performed, and it's something that they've anticipated that valuations had become quite extended in particular areas of the marketplace and they had moved their portfolio accordingly. So I think it's always worth kind of getting a feel for an investment manager, what they're looking to do and and what their style is. I mean, clearly there are growth managers and there are value managers, but a lot of managers will be, um, I mean, John Bennett describes himself as style agnostic I think it's probably fair to say over recent years, he's kind of taken a more contrarian value approach, but that's because that's where he believes the opportunity to be. If you talk to the JP Morgan team on global growth and income, you know, historically, they're probably in a little bit more towards growth, but actually, they're quite happy to move to where they see their best stock ideas. It's very much a kind of research driven process. So I would say that was very much one of the features. And then again, talking about the conference, inflation, you know, how worried should we be? about inflation, about the response that we're going to see from central banks, what it means to corporate earnings, their ability to pass on price increases, uh, the ability to kind of navigate their way through supply constraints. That's clearly commanding a lot of time for investment managers. They're really trying to get behind those their portfolio companies, trying to get behind those updates to understand how they will be impacted through this period. So I think uh, overall, you could probably say that investment managers are earning their money at the moment. They certainly seem to be quite busy. There's a lot to consider at this moment in time.
0: Indeed. And when you get these sharp movements in over short periods of time, it is, uh, I mean, experience suggests that you shouldn't get too excited about it because they will often correct, as we saw last year, these things do come back quite often. But maybe, you know, there are enough reasons out there to think that we are seeing, you know, the seeds of some kind of secular change in the regime. Uh, And that, I think, is really what's more important when you're trying to plan your portfolio. And the choice for investors is between, you know, either pick Managers who you know are going to just carry on doing what they said they're going to do, and you make the decisions about making the shifted style, or you try and find a manager who's actually quite good at shifting from one style to another. And that, uh, in my experience, they're harder beasts to find in, in print practice. Um, but I thought the other interesting issue that came up at your conference, a bit I listened to anyway, was talking to um, Olivia Markham, the manager of the BlackRock World Mining Trust. Because one of the other issues that's been going on in the background here is what's happening in China. And that obviously has a huge impact on commodities. And the argument there is, as we know, the Chinese economy has slowed quite significantly. And the government there has been taking uh, quite tough steps to control lending, at least by historic standards. But she was saying that she actually thinks that there are signs that the Chinese now are beginning to ease their policy uh, tightening. And uh, and if so, that's going to be quite positive for the commodities over the next uh, couple of years. And therefore, that will also continue to feed into inflation. So it's a very complex picture, as you say. I'm not going to put you on the spot by saying what's going to happen at the end of the year. Though I think you did make some predictions in your annual review. And uh, last year, you got almost all your predictions right. I have to mention this because that's pretty unusual for anybody else who gets into the punditry business. To make a forecast at the start of the year and to get most of them right by the end of the year is pretty remarkable. But, of course, you completely got the cricket wrong. I mean, that's... (laughs) (laughs) you always have a sporting prediction at the end and this year you're predicting
1: something about the world cup football i think aren't you uh quite possibly i can't remember what we said now i think we said england would would stumble out about the quarter final stage or something who knows something along those lines
0: anyway but so uh we'll keep track of uh, simon's forecasts over the course of this year and see how they pan out they won't be as good as mine because i don't make any so that's my uh, my let out here (laughs) Anyway, that's all we have time for this week. Let's hope that, uh, well, let's see what happens next week. It could be quite exciting if this kind of volatility continues much longer. Uh, You know, share prices crashing, rising, and so on. It it takes uh, two views to make a market, as they often say, and we've certainly got two views out there at the moment. So that's all we have time for, and look forward to speaking to you all next week.
1: This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, wwwmoney to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, the Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.